everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'm George Connolly, and this is Scratch Stories, the podcast where I sit down with golf's most interesting individuals and discuss their golf journey. As always, I'd like to thank you all for the feedback I've been receiving on the podcast. And if you've been enjoying these interviews, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, as that helps out the show greatly. On today's episode, I spoke with Henry Statina, a decorated golf teaching professional who was named Golf Digest Best Teacher in the state of New Mexico last year. Henry and I had a really great discussion on this episode that I think you'll enjoy a lot. We spoke about golf as a family sport, the importance of understanding the golf club, not the golf swing, and we we had a really, really excellent conversation about visualization and expectation on the golf course, which I personally learned a ton from, and I'm sure that you will too. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Henry Satina. All right, I want to like to welcome Henry Satina onto the podcast. Henry, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I did some introduction of you earlier in, uh, in this episode because there's a lot to go over with you. But um, with anyone's journey through golf, I think the, the greatest starting point is how you found out about the sport, how, how you got into it. So can you shed some light on maybe some, uh, some people who got you into the sport or, or how you really found the sport of golf? Sure. So um, no doubt it was my dad who got me into the game. Um, he was a, a lifelong golfer. And so we kind of grew up at the driving range. Uh, my brother and I pretty quickly moved on to a few little junior golf programs, got involved with some of the people around the course and, and started um, a, a very regular day of being dropped off at the golf course and then being picked up in the evenings. My mom, on the other hand, stayed on the range for quite a while. And then um, up until this day, we all still play golf, um, not as often together, but we all definitely play individually. That's awesome. So it was a whole family affair. You had both of the parents and a sibling. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. It was a great childhood. So I'm guessing w- with that, there's kind of an emotional connection that you have to the sport in that it brings the family together. Absolutely. Um, some of my best memories come from the four of us playing golf in Santa Fe where we grew up, but also on vacations, traveling, and then um, on the junior tour. Um, I played the, uh, the, the PGA section's junior tour growing up and have developed friendships that have lasted over 20 years. In fact, I met my wife on the junior tour when I was 11 years old. Wow. And so she's a, she's a PGA professional too. Yeah, she's a golf pro and we're introducing our kids to the game. But for me, I mean, for my entire life, golf has been part of my family, her family, and now together. Um, and it's, uh, it's certainly a, a game for families and it can be a game that can be played a lifetime. Absolutely, I agree. And I think it's interesting that you bring up um, youth programs and, and you have a great deal of involvement in those. Um, since you've played in them and now that you are participating in them as a pro, can you talk about the development of youth programs? Because I know that they've come a long way in these past couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I never, I don't ever recall having a youth set of golf clubs. I mean, mm-hmm. even from the very beginning, my dad did club repair for, and, uh, and so he would cut down clubs for us. He did all of our repairs and buildings. And, and so um, I always had adult sets. And so nowadays, you know, just from the equipment alone, kids are getting a better introduction to the game. I mean, U.S. Kids makes a great set. Um, and then there's some other companies out there uh, from a, from a, youth development perspective on programming um, we had some 
little programs at the club. We had a great pro who supported junior golf. He raised money to make sure that we had the equipment and the resources that we needed to play. But I mean, the PGA has done a fantastic job with the ADM, uh, the American development model. They have a bunch of great programming from PGA, junior league, um, to a, a variety of others that are really looking at the player as an athlete first and develop them, developing them more holistically and just making golf a part of their development. And I think that's why we're seeing so many athletes on the PGA and the LPGA tour um, because of the way junior golf programs have developed over the past 20 years or so. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see that because you're right in the fact that there are a lot of athletes, you know, when you look at golfers, in the 1990s, they don't look like the Rory McIlroy's and, and, and the Kepkas on tour. And I think that a huge part of the growth of golf recently is attributed to that, that development within children and really showing them this isn't, you know, you can really take this seriously and make something of this sport if you commit yourself to it. Absolutely. I played a, a variety of sports, most sports growing up, um, some organized, some just in the backyard, but you know, what's, what's interesting is that the, the players that are coming through the game today are far more athletic than I ever was. And uh, PJ Junior League is actually pro providing a unique experience that golf is becoming a team sport. We host Junior League here in Las Cruces where I'm, where I'm living. And um, it's interesting to see on the first tee how many people are watching these kids tee off. I mean, they have two teams, they have families and support groups, they have coaches. I mean, if I would have had that opportunity growing up, I probably would be far more comfortable playing in front of a crowd today than I am because of learning that at, at a very young age. Sure. And do you think that model of teaching and development, um, obviously there's, there's a, a wanting for a lot of these kids they want to, you know, show off. They want to have these avenues to be flamboyant and to show off their skills. Do you think that this PGA Tour program or, or PGA program for children is kind of appeasing to that part of them? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's great to give the kids an opportunity to be in front of the group. I mean, public speaking in itself is one of the most fearful tasks or, you know, that we're going to be doing. And mm -hmm. so for a child to be able to get up in front of the group and perform is going to go a long ways for them. And there are some that are definitely a little bit more comfortable in that environment and they enjoy it. And so it's going to just kind of even move them along quicker than if they didn't have that opportunity. Absolutely. I agree. I, I think that you've done some great work in that space and, and there's a ton of improvement that has been made recently and it's really great to see. So uh, shifting away from that aspect of it, I'd like to go back into uh, you were just talking about how you played a, a lot of sports, whether it be organized or more recreational growing up. Uh, when did golf emerge for you as a sport that you really saw yourself playing? I, I just got introduced at six or seven years old. And I remember my parents putting me in a golf tournament at our local course when I was 10 years old. And it's interesting because I can kind of remember some of the, you know, scenes that might have gone on on that day because I really enjoyed it. It was a really uh, aha, eye-opening type experience for me. And, and that was the only one I played in at 10. But then at age 11, I played in a full season of tournaments. And so um, that was really, you know, 10 to 11 was really the time when I feel like I kind of got that golf bug, you could say. And I played competitively ever since. Um, 
I played all through junior golf until I was 18. I played in high school, played in college, a little bit professionally. And I don't have as much time anymore, but I still like playing in tournaments. I like to, you know, play the, the bigger the tournament, the better, really. Mm -hmm. So when you, um, you know, you're playing in, in the junior league until 18 and then you get to, uh, to college, was that a big jump for you? Or how did you, how did you, um, you know, learn from that? So I, I was a pretty decent junior golfer, decent in high school, not one of the premier players in our state, but maybe pretty close. And um, I didn't very, didn't do very well getting into a college. I wrote a lot of letters. I contacted a lot of, a lot of coaches, but um, for whatever reason, I wasn't in the position to get recruited. Um, I didn't play in national events that might've had part something to do with it. But um, I knew my, my dad had a friend who had a friend who was a coach and I ended up getting to play at a two year school in Kansas called Pratt community college. And uh, culturally, it was a bit of a shock to my system, but from a golf standpoint, it was exactly with what I needed. It was a great transition. It was the next stage in my development. Um, my first year was a little challenging, but my second year was really good. I was one of the top players in the conference and in the region, uh, made it to nationals. I developed quite nicely at that school. And uh, I think it, it has led to some of my confidence that I've developed as an adult. And when you think about that, the time spent there, uh, what do you think was, were some of the main contributors to the improvement? Was it coaching? Was it self-discovery? That's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I need to think about that more. Um, I would assume it's, it's self-discovery, you know, uh, being away from home for the first time, getting a sense of, of being on my own, learning, you know, simple things as, you know, going to class on my own, uh, doing laundry, you know, prioritizing, but then also being independent in golf and, and going to these events, being one of the, I was the captain of the team my second year. So that allowed me some more responsibility that I hadn't yet exposed to. And so, yeah, I think, you know, just, just being on our own for the first time, that age frame is, is really valuable. Absolutely. So you play a couple of years there and then, and then what's next? So I wanted to go back home. Uh, I, was, I was getting recruited by a few schools, and um, they tend to be smaller. They were, some of them were Division I, but they were smaller schools and smaller towns. And I wanted to go back to my home state of New Mexico. Um, I was really looking to go to the University of New Mexico, but I was also con considering New Mexico State. And a, a friend slash employer of mine um, kind of recommended that I go take a look at New Mexico State University. They had a PGA golf management program. Their golf team um, wasn't to the caliber of UNM. UNM was number one in the country at the time. And so he felt like I could go to the program and potentially walk onto the team, which is what I tried doing. Um, I really enjoyed the PGA program. I ended up getting involved in that and then uh, tried to walk onto the golf team, didn't make it. But looking back, that was probably a blessing in disguise because of the experience that I had in the PGA program. Sure. So when you were uh, studying PGA, that's always, um, I think that's an interesting transition from someone who's playing the game and learning how to play to learning how to teach. So what did you, what, what kind of, what, what was that transition like on your end? Did you enjoy the process of learning to teach? Did you find passion for it then? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I work for the university now for the PGA program and I, and I see the students coming through and how they're transitioning. 
And sometimes I forget how I went through the program as a student. And I actually saw the PGA program as an opportunity to continue playing golf. I didn't want to be a golf pro. I had no interest in it. Actually, I didn't see myself becoming a teaching pro. Um, it wasn't until the very, very end as I was graduating that I was exposed to an instructor who kind of turned the light bulb on for me and then going to work for a professional who kind of showed me the ropes of what being a golf professional really was that I became interested in this as a career. So before you sparked that interest, what was your career plan? Did you want to pursue playing? Yeah, I think so. Um, as a child, I always dreamt of being on the PGA Tour. And um, up until that point, I still had that as, as a dream, even though I wasn't you know, on the roadmap for, for getting there, that was, that was all I really saw myself doing. So then you, you, you get this passion um, for teaching and, and you learn it. Um, that's always something, as I said earlier, it's a bit of a transition. So what was your first role as a teacher like? So as I was finishing the program, I was in New Jersey working at a really high-end facility and a friend of a friend, we were all alumni of the PGA program at NMSU, um, he suggested that we go to a teaching seminar in, in Scottsdale um, taught by a PGA Hall of Fame instructor named Emmanuel De La Torre. And we had no idea who he was, but this, this alumni of ours, um, you know, he was convinced that, that we would enjoy it. And so he, he, he got us to go and we found that it was uh, quite eye-opening to say the least. And when I returned back home, I had plans to go back to school and our director of the program, Pat Gavin, sent my wife and I to go work at a course an hour north of Las Cruces by another PGA Hall of Famer named Guy Wimberly. And that was our first real job out of college. We were both assistant pros. Um, I was allowed to give golf lessons. And so I was basically fumbling my way through what I had learned from Manuel. And the members or the customers that played the course were very good at paying me to give them golf lessons, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that I was learning what to do. Um, it was a very family oriented facility. I'm sure Guy, uh, you know, recommended that they take lessons from me to give me that opportunity. And so um, that was an, that was a situation that I, I will forever be grateful for because of what I learned from Guy and for the opportunity to practice my skills of teaching golf. Sure. And I think um, it, it's interesting because you, you need to go through training in order to be put in that position. But once you're there, you learn so much just by doing it and, and just by being, you know, doing the act of teaching. So early on in your teachings, what, what were some of the learning curves that you ran into? So, I mean, I'm sure it's like learning anything. There's a lot of failure at the very beginning. It's, it's difficult. Just because I knew golf didn't mean I knew how to teach golf. Um, being able to take a subject matter that can seem quite complicated and, and breaking it down to something more simplistic and then being able to communicate it to another human being and being able to work through all the little nuances and the hangups that we're going to experience is an art in itself. And so I had some of the, I had the, the playing experience. I had some of the teaching principles, 
but being able to use those principles was probably the most challenging thing for me. Being able to know when and how to apply them, being able to communicate them in ways that the player can understand and use in their own games. Um, I would I would say that that was probably the biggest learning curve. And looking at young instructors now, you have to be willing to go through that. Of all the skills in the golf industry, that is the one that is the most difficult because we're doing it with another person. Mm-hmm. If we mess it up, they know. It's not like running a tournament or doing a league or merchandising or something that can be done in the office. And if there's a mistake, we can fix it before anyone else sees. Learning to give golf lessons is something that is very challenging. I bet. And um, so I was speaking with Keith Bennett. Uh, I had him on the podcast. I know that you're, you're friendly with Keith. Um, and he spoke a lot about in going into a lesson, you need to figure out someone's motivation. Why are they there? What are they looking to do? Is that something that, that you had a tough time figuring out? Or, or once you get there, is it pretty, is it pretty self-explanatory from there? Yeah, so when, when I first started teaching, I mean, I was, I was an assistant pro and I was giving a few golf lessons a week. And then I moved to Phoenix and got involved in a few different things and then returned to New Mexico um, a few years later. And I was in a position where I was teaching golf instruction. That's when I met Keith. Um, with, without as much experience as you would think from a person in that, in that position. And so over the past seven years, my learning curve has gone through the roof. And part of it is exactly that in learning to connect with the player on a much deeper level understanding why they're there for a lesson can be very valuable. Sometimes we tend to think that they're going to have the same interest and passion for golf and for improvement in golf as we do. But in reality, they might not. I mean, they, they might be looking to um, feel more comfortable in the family outing that they're going to be playing in, or they want to get a little bit better so that they don't embarrass themselves in the corporate outing that they're going to be playing with their boss. Um, Maybe it's that they haven't had a very good relationship with their brother-in-law and that he plays golf. And so if they were to play golf, maybe they can bridge the gap and develop a little bit better relationship. And so there's a bunch of underlying reasons for why people are, are playing golf and wanting to take golf lessons. And if we can better understand their, their motivation for the game, I think we're going to be able to connect with them on a level that is going to be more meaningful for their development in golf. I couldn't agree anymore. I think, um, uh, especially when you're with a teaching pro, teaching pros know a lot about golf. And I think it could be easy for a teaching pro, if they don't approach it the right way, to just overwhelm the student with information. So getting that connection would thwart that idea and have it become you know, a more interpersonal connection which I think is, is, is great and would lead to the most development. Now, one thing I spoke about with Keith, which I'd be interested to hear uh, you touch upon a little bit, is faults that people come into lessons with. I know that there are, are some golfers out there who say, oh, lessons don't work for me, or lessons, I, I just never get much out of them. And it could be that they're approaching them the wrong way. So can you shed any light on, on aspects of people's games that they can hone in on or things they can do to focus on really getting their bang for their buck when they're going to teaching pros. Yeah, that's a great point. Some lessons don't work. Good lessons do work though. And I think a good lesson is one where the player is learning what to do with the golf club. The golf club is the single factor that's influencing the ball. 
And it never ceases to amaze me how uneducated golfers are at what the club has to do to produce a given ball flight. These are very simple principles rooted in the laws of physics that influence the flight of the golf ball. And people still don't understand what they are. Hmm. We need to understand how the face and the path work together to influence ball flight. We need to understand how the centeredness of contact is so influential in where the ball goes and how far it goes. People need to become independent of their own games by understanding the simple laws of ball flight. And so the, the golf club is, is got some very important design elements to it. And they're used for a purpose of sending the ball to the target. And if we understand its design and what it does to influence that flight, we're going to use it differently. We're going to use it differently. We're going to use it the way it's been designed to be used. And so during a golf lesson, a, a large part of it is educating the golfer on what the club is doing to produce the ball flight that they are seeing and then educating them on what the golf club needs to do to produce the ball flight that they want. So it's not, it's, you, you, do you think people are overcomplicating it sometimes? Um, that, yes and no. Yeah. I think that golfers are, and golf instructors, the community of, of the game, yeah, overcomplicating it. Not, not knowing exactly what to look for. I mean, it sounds like we're simplifying it if we, if we, if we talk about what the club needs to, to do. At the end of the day, that is what we're trying to do. That's the objective of the game. The objective of the game is to send the ball to the target. And so what we need to do is know what to do with the tool that sends the ball to the target. Mm -hmm. We are really good at using tools. Humans have the innate ability to use tools beyond all other species on the planet. We are really good at it. Mm. That's what our brain is capable of doing. We, we have tools since the beginning of time that were used to hunt and fish and to gather and you know, to, to survive. And we've been doing this to where our brain is equipped to use the body in a way that's going to produce the tool use to the best of our ability. And the golf club is simply a tool for sending the ball to the target. And so if we can get to a level of understanding of what the golf club is supposed to do, we would very easily be able to use it in that fashion. Absolutely. So would you say your teaching style prioritizes understanding of the tool, understanding of the golf club over you know, the, the, the technical jargon that some people expect in a lesson, you know, don't rotate your hips as much, you extend your arms. Would you say that you prioritize just the understanding of the tools? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I was teaching a child how to write, I would teach them what to do with the pen. If I was teaching a person to drive, I would teach them what to do with the vehicle. All tools, you know, if we, we were really good at using apps. We're scrolling through Facebook and Instagram. We're using the app. We're using the tool. We're not teaching each other how to use the fingers and the thumbs and the forearms. And that all happens at a subconscious level. 
the golf club is a tool. We need to learn what the tool is to be used for. And it really isn't that difficult of a motion. A swing is a defined movement. Mm-hmm. Look it up in the dictionary. It's a defined movement. It's a to and fro movement suspended from an axis. A swing set is an example of it. A pendulum is an example of it. If we can get the club set up correctly and put into a swinging motion, it will produce great ball flight time and time again. So it's just about understanding the club. That, that's the biggest part. That's the biggest part, yeah. It, it doesn't discredit that the body is involved. The body does move the club, no doubt about it. And the body that's more physically fit, you know, stronger, flexible, more coordinated, more balanced, et cetera, is obviously going to produce a better swinging motion. Sure. Do you find it difficult to get that sentiment across or is it pretty well received by most of your students? Um, good question. Um, it has gotten easier. I've gotten better at understanding it and explaining it. Um, it's very different though. Mm. Yeah, it's very different. 99% of ball, uh, golf instruction is all body related. You don't see in golf magazines very often that you need to have the face and the path oriented in a certain way to hit a certain ball flight. We Absolutely. don't really talk about what the club should look like halfway back at the end of the backswing, et cetera. We don't see too much of that. And so it's a very different way of going about it. But when we look at all the university research, external focus of attention, so think of something other than the body, the tools and the tasks, um, time and time again has been proven to be a superior way of learning, um, skill development, retention, club head speed, you name it, the whole thing. It, it's been proven or is being proved that it is a superior way of learning than if we were focusing on what the body needs to do. I think that's very interesting because there, I have certainly observed a shift away from over technical teaching. And I when again, going back to Keith, I spoke to Keith Bennett and he's, he spoke about the importance of understanding the mental side of the game. And it's just, I think it's very easy to get caught up in the technical side of the game because that's what all the articles are about that all the videos are about that. But there is so much value in learning outside of just the technical part. Absolutely. I, Keith is, is just rocking it. I mean, he's doing fantastic. Um, his level of understanding of the golf swing and performance, skill development, coaching. I mean, his, it's going through the roof and he's getting fantastic uh, following on social media. His lesson book is packed over at his course in Seattle. Um, so he's doing a great job. And at the end of the day, everything's mental. I mean, it comes back to the mental. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, it's, it's quite obvious that the club produces the ball flight. It's also quite obvious that the body moves the club. But what oftentimes gets left out is that the, the brain is moving the body to move the club to send the ball. Mm. And so everything that we need to do stems from what the, the brain is doing. And so if we have a player who's, who's thinking about turning their hips or their shoulders, like you suggested earlier, they can't also be thinking of what to do with the golf club. Mm, that's a good point. Right? So we need to know, we need to develop a holistic picture of what the golf club needs to do, allowing for our body to respond freely and learning to keep our mind focused on that singular intention for the duration of the swing, two seconds, three seconds. It's what tour players cons- consider committing to the shot. Okay. Right. 
when we're putting, for example, we're reading the green, we're visualizing what we want the ball to do. And then when we're putting, oftentimes people actually forget that. They think of something else, rocking their shoulders, their backstroke, something, keeping their knees still, whatever it might be. But what we need to do is to keep that message of what we want the ball to do. We need to keep that message from brain to muscles for the duration of the stroke. That signal needs to be strong for the entire motion. Otherwise, how is that going to happen? Mm -hmm. If you're not thinking of the ball rolling to the target, how do you think it's going to happen? When I go to sign my name, I think of, the, of what I want my pen to do. I think of my signature for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I think this it just goes back to visualization, and that's something that you've put you've put some content out there, and it's so overlooked by amateurs. You, they step up to a shot, they see a pin, and they swing. But you need to be behind that ball. You need to be looking at a ball flight, a ball trajectory, thinking about wind. It's all about visualization. It's all about visualization. The brain controls everything. Yeah, we have to visualize what we want. Here, here's another one: is that we we visualize you know what we don't want. Amateur golfers are out there thinking of not hitting it in the weeds and they're, they don't want to hit it in the water. They're visualizing the very thing that they don't want and then they're surprised when it happens. We need to visualize what we want prior to swinging, but most importantly, we need to visualize it while we're swinging. That's an excellent point and I, I, I couldn't agree more. If, if you have a par three and there's water on the left, you're not thinking about your shot to the pin, you're thinking about the water on the left. <laughs> and then you hit it in the water in the left and you're surprised about it. So I think yeah. that, that's an excellent point. And it's not to say you shouldn't think about the misses. You should consider them and think about where your potential miss will be. But when you're visualizing the shot, the miss should not be in the picture at all. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, when we're planning out the shot, we can look at the things that, we're, you know, the obstacles, the, the bunkers and the, the water hazards out of balance. We need to look at the things that we're trying to avoid so that it helps us select a target that is going to be safe. And so once we've gotten our target selected, then everything has to be focused on what we're going to do to get to that target. We need to work in the positive. We need to be able to say, I want the ball to do this. Absolutely. Um, one of my instructors, uh, Manuel De La Torre, he used to say that, you know, this same topic on, on focusing on what we don't want to have happen is like going to a grocery store with a list of items that we don't want to buy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it sounds insane, but yet that's what golfers are doing all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, and uh, with this podcast, I think it's, it'd be difficult for, for you or I to sit here and tell everyone, your shoulders should look like this, your arms should look like this. Those tips are difficult to give over this medium, but tips about visualization and pre-shot routine I think that that's stuff that can really resonate with people. Absolutely. Look, line up all the pros on either the men's or the women's tour on the driving range. We can look at all the differences of their swings. And the unique thing about it is that all those people look differently. Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson look different. Human bodies, their bodies are different. John Daly looks different. Xander Shafi looks different. They all look different. And then if we were to go in and do some kind of uh, body imaging and looked at their, you know, their range of motion in, in each of their joints and their muscle balances and all the different aspects of their physical being, and we're going to see even more 
But when we look at the movement of their club, it's going to be far more universal. To produce a given ball flight, the club has to do the same thing. It's the laws of physics. So impact is going to look very, very similar. When we talk about draws versus fades for those players, it's only a couple of degrees. And then when we start looking at the swing, I mean, everyone says from about waist high to waist high is all that matters. Well, the club is moving very similarly. Take a player with a closed club face going back or with a big loop in their motion. As it comes back towards the hitting area, it's very similar to somebody who doesn't do that kind of nuance complication during their swing. And so the similarities become far more obvious when we start looking at what the club is actually doing for the best players in the world. Sure. I think it's, it's easy to say, hey, I'm going to model my swing after this person or I'm going to model my stroke after this person. But at the end of the day, they're very different people. And yes, the, the mechanics have some similarity, but it's, it's such an individualistic sport. Yeah, I love that one. People, almost everyone says that they would like to copy Adam Scott's swing, especially his posture. Yeah, mm -hmm. especially his posture, right? Well, watch him walk down the fairway someday. He's got great posture. He has nice clothes. He is on the cover of GQ magazine. He's a really good looking guy. <laughs> Obviously, he's going to look good swinging a golf club. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. We all look different. We are all going to look different swinging a golf club. When we start looking at what the club's doing, it's the tool. It's how we use it. It's what we're doing with it that produces the ball flight. Absolutely. I think posture is an excellent example because Adam Scott does have pretty impeccable posture, but there are a lot of guys <laughs> on tour who at address, they don't have great posture. They're just slumped over and they are still a professional golfer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Jason Kokrak won last week, first time in his career. That was incredible. And he doesn't look like Adam Scott. He doesn't look like some of these other players, but he's made an incredible living on the PGA Tour. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's been close to winning many times, but finally broke through. And it would be interesting to see if we were to take, let's say, Gears, some kind of a 3D imaging program where we could look at his golf swing without his body presence. Mm. How many people would notice, uh, you know, be able to relate who's is whose? Could, could you identify which one is Adam Scott's? Could you identify what is different in Jason Kokrex than in Adam Scott's? That's an excellent point. I think if, because there have been a couple of videos I've seen on social media where it's just a silhouette of a player and you can see the outline. And there are some small things you can notice, but if you take away the, the, the way that they look, the, the clothes they wear, the logos on their clothes, the difference really isn't crazy. You know, I think it'd be so similar to where a person would, even with a trained eye, would have a very difficult time identifying the differences. You, you probably see a difference in Matthew Wolf's swing, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could figure out his and we could figure out Jason or uh, Jim Furyk's. Uh, it'd be interesting, though, from a foot before impact and a foot after impact, if we could tell a difference, though. Oh, yeah, that is interesting because Matthew Wolf at impact is, I mean, pretty similar than the, to the other guys. Yeah, yeah, his whole forward swing is pretty similar. His back swing is obviously very, very different. It's pretty traditional looking. That's interesting. I, I think, yeah, Wolf is definitely an interesting case because that's just the case of someone, you know, George Gankus seeing that swing and instead of saying, hey, I'm going to rewrite this whole thing, let's just tweak it to be as good as it can be. And he, he's turned it into a pretty good swing. You nailed it.
that's exactly the the genius in what he's done with that swing is that he didn't change it. So uh, we we spoke a little bit earlier about um, understanding the golf club, but once that understanding is there, there still is technical teaching. We, we can't just overlook technical teaching entirely. So can you talk a little bit about your process in the more technical aspects of the swing? Can you define what you mean by technical? I would say focusing on particular movements of the body throughout the swing, like uh, the hips, the shoulders, uh, so some of those mm -hmm. more basic aspects of the, of the body. Yep. So um, I look at the, a golf, a swing is a motion. I don't necessarily think of it as positions as much as it's a motion. I look at it more holistically. And so I want to get the player to put the golf club in motion and the golf club swings for the right-handed player over the right shoulder. It swings forward, brushes the grass and swings around the left shoulder. And while that motion is taking place, the hips are turning and tilting, the shoulders are turning and tilting and they are moving with the golf club. And so depending on a person's range of motion will determine the amount of rotation that the player is getting. But one of the most, two of the most unique aspects of the golf swing that trick people up, number one is that the swing is circular. The club is moving around the player in a circular fashion. The target line is tangent to that circle. That, that's very difficult to understand that a circular motion will send the ball straight. Mm -hmm. And then the second big factor is that it's on an inclined plane. It's not like a baseball swing that's a horizontal plane. Um, it's not vertical like a swing set. It's on an inclined plane. And so the player has to bend over to the degree at which the club is on. The putter is a more vertical plane. The driver is a, a flatter plane. And so we need to adjust ourselves to that plane. And so what becomes very unique is that for each club, the shoulders and the hips are going to be turning on the, a unique plane. And so one of the reasons that I can't really get too, too technical with the players, because if we start talking about the degrees, which club are we talking about that for? Oh, it's yes. going to be different, mm -hmm. right? If you, if you learn to turn your hips a certain way, which club is that for? We need to know that we need to allow the body to respond to what the club is doing. When we introduce tension, now the body isn't responding like it should. And so when we see that the club, that the swing is going to be on a certain plane and we're putting the club in motion, the body will respond to the swinging motion in a way that is suitable for it. And it'll be different for every club. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's definitely been a source of debate a little bit with Bryson's single length irons is, you know, is it worth under just, just figuring everything out at once or, you know, just lumping everything together and, and having it all be the same, same, uh, same length. But that is definitely a very teachable thing is just figuring out what club you're, you're rocking with. And, you know, your swing with a 58 degree is certainly going to be different than a driver. Yep, exactly. And what, what Bryson's doing is very unique, obviously. Um, but what the whole idea of a single length iron is so that you have a single lie angle, mm -hmm. which puts the, those clubs on a singular plane, which to me makes sense. It's taking away one of the variables. The argument is that 
how does he create a distance gapping between his clubs? Because now we've changed the, you know, changed the length to being all the same. And so that has, um, you know, changed one of the variables that, that normally produces a difference in, gap, in distance gapping. And so supposedly he's done some kind of an adjustment to either the lofts or the weights to accommodate for a difference in uh, length. Absolutely. And the, I think that there, he, we've seen when he first came out with them, we saw some awkwardness with his lob wedge. As you would assume, if you have a lob wedge with the same lie angle as a seven iron, that's, that's not going to be easy. But um, I, I, I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on Bryson's game in general right now. Obviously, he's kind of shaken up the golf world. He's hitting these, uh, he posted on social media a couple days ago that he carried a drive 400 yards, which is pretty impressive. So w what do you think um, his impact is? What, what do you think it has been? And what do you think it will con continue to be on the game of golf? Yeah, he, um, I've been a fan of his. Uh, I, I think what he's doing makes sense. Um, he's very intelligent. He's doing things that are backed by science. And he is definitely an outlier. I don't think he gets the credit that he is due because people don't really appreciate things that they don't understand. Um, I think where his swing looks so funky is because his lie angles are very upright and his grips are so large that it looks non-traditional. But if he had this normal lie angles, I think that he would, um, I think he would look very nice. I think it would be kind of a, a model swing that a lot of people would want to imitate. Regarding the body transformation, um, that has happened very drastically in a very short amount of time, and he's gaining a lot of distance out of it, which is um, obviously stirring up the world. But, um, I mean, he's, he's brilliant. He's a smart guy. He's doing what, what he thinks is best for his game. He's pushing the, you know, the envelope, and, and I think that he deserves a lot of credit for what he's doing. It's just a shame that a person who is so different doesn't get the credit that they deserve. Um, similar to a, a Galileo or somebody who is exiled from their communities um, because they had a different way of thinking. I, I agree. And I think his intelligence is remarkable. And I think people are kind of becoming more and more accepting of him since the, the performance at Wingfoot, certainly. Um, but I think it's, it's definitely... Yeah, that'll help. Yeah, he uses a system called Decade that both Keith and I have... Uh, uh, become very involved in. It's a system on course management, expectation management. Um, it has transformed my way of thinking around a golf course. And more importantly than that, my way of thinking, um, just knowing what the tour players actually do from various distances has transformed my understanding and my ability to teach others because we're used to seeing players on the PGA Tour who are are you know, it's basically a highlight reel. The TV coverage is showing the best shots from the best players playing their best golf on that day. They don't show the bad shots, obviously, and they don't even show the normal shots. They're only showing the highlight reel. It's like watching Sports Center and seeing a dunk contest or a three-point contest. Mm -hmm. That's what the golf coverage is like. And so what Bryson is, is using is you know, from a course management and expectation management type standpoint is very, very valuable. And it's something that I think more golfers are going to need to learn in order to play better, but more importantly, to have more fun. I mean, we beat our up out there. For example, eight foot putt is 50, 50 uh, make rate on the PGA tour. Mm. And people, you know, they think they should make those all the time. 
on lousy greens without practicing and playing once a week. Uh, yeah, um, the other, the, the, the other one is the wedge game, you know, from, from 75 to a hundred yards, they're, they're, they're hitting the green 80% of the time. They're hitting it to 18 feet proximity to the hole on average. And yet I see players who think they should be hitting it to like five feet all the time. And so when they don't, they get upset with themselves and then they develop this snowball effect that is just causing anger and frustration throughout the round, literally um, ultimately giving up the game because they don't have realistic expectations of what is even remotely close to possible for their current skill level. That's a great point. I think it's something that a lot of people don't really consider, but you're, you're right. When, you, when you're watching PJ Tour coverage, those are the best players playing their best golf and only their best shots. I, people see 15-footers. I mean, if you're watching TV, most 15-footers you see go in because that's the nature of the broadcast. But the percentage is nowhere near that. It's well below 50%. Yeah, it is, it is obscene to, to, to see the differences. I mean, they're, they're making them from everywhere on TV. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. Even at that level, it doesn't happen. One thing I thought on the broad, I was watching the broadcast for the Zozo yesterday and they were talking about Jason Cockrack, who was hitting a bunch of putts and they said, um, I think he hit seven putts that went in over 20 feet, which is very impressive. And people are thinking, Oh, these guys make 20 footers all the time. And they said, Cockrack hadn't made a 20 plus foot putt in his past three starts. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just not, it, I think it's, it just puts forth a, if, if you go in with those expectations, I, I agree. You're going to drive yourself crazy on the course. Yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure they make one per event, mm. one putt over 20 feet per event. And so one week he makes seven and he, you know, performs well, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then multiple weeks go where he doesn't. Well, if you, you can't beat yourself up on those weeks, you got to know what to expect and how averages work. Because if you continuously beat yourself up after every round, you're never going to get to the level of play that you are even capable of getting to. Absolutely. That's a perfect example of it. Tour players, they shoot, they, they average about 71 on average. But yeah, we see 66s and 62s like it's their job. Yeah, they're not showing the highlights from the guy who, who played the, the course at even par. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, it's funny too. Consistency. We want more consistency. I looked it up. The top 10 players in the world scoring differential from their best round to their worst round last season averaged about 14 strokes. Wow. Yeah. Justin Johnson had the biggest differential. I think he shot a 60 and an 80. Uh, Brooks Kepka had the next. It was like 61 and an 80, something like that. I mean, 20 stroke differential. And we're looking for consistency. My new response to that is, how about playing golf more consistently? Once mm. a week ain't cutting it. Sure. Once a month ain't cutting it. If you're playing to that degree of consistency, how in the world do you expect to score consistently? Play golf every day and let's chat about it. Exactly, yeah. Because <laughs> you're, if you're playing golf once a week and you play and you shoot an 85 and then you play – the next time and it's rainy and the course is wet and you shoot a 91 and you're like oh i have no consistency that's no that's not how that works yeah yeah let's get consistent course conditions and weather conditions and 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 body conditions let's get all of those elements in place and then let's start talking about it it yeah. ain't gonna happen everything that we do in golf is inconsistent exactly it's a very inconsistent sport i think those are some great points about um about just managing those expectations 
Well, Henry, I, those are some excellent insights. I appreciate it very much. Now, before I let you go, um, I do know uh, you, you offer lessons over the Skillist app. Is this correct? That is. I started doing that at the beginning of the pandemic. It's been interesting. So, um, yeah, how, how has that been for you? Is that something that you've enjoyed recently? Yeah, it's been good. Obviously, this whole year has been just crazy. And um, I teach golf instruction for the university. And so one of the things that we did when we went to the, when, when the pandemic first hit was to get a little bit more involved in social media and to start doing online lessons. And two things that I learned from online lessons that I would never have imagined are that a person seems to benefit because they're able to uh, read the information, watch the videos that we send, I'm assuming in the comfort of their home. And it gives them some time to digest the information before going to the golf course. And so when they go to the golf course, they've already kind of worked through it a little bit in their mind. And then when they're at the golf course, the second thing that I'm finding to be most beneficial is that they don't have the instructor hounding them after every swing or every three swings. Mm -hmm. They can kind of fiddle around with it and explore the information, maybe even rewatch the videos or read the messages again and kind of work through it at their own pace. And so I'm finding that it can add a lot of value to a player um, for those two reasons. Sure. So if anybody uh, has any interest in reaching out to you there, um, how can they find you? So they can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Henry Statina Golf or on the Skillist app simply by searching for my name, Henry Statina, S-T-E-T-I-N-A. And you also have a website? I do have a website, uh, www.henrystatinagolf.com. And uh, yeah, there's a few instructional tips, a couple videos, and then uh, a little bit about our junior golf program that got national recognition. It's kind of cool. It is. It's been great. And one thing I, I will say, the, the Instagram account, I think that the content you put out there is really great. Um, again, it's very easy to find technical content that becomes overwhelming. Henry's content is not that way. It's very, you have some nice posts on visualization, pre-shot routine, things like that. So that's a great Instagram follow. I'd recommend everybody to follow that account as well. All right, Henry, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I think there are some great insights offered. And uh, I, again, I appreciate it very much. Man, I, re I really appreciate you having me on. I thought that was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. I could feel that we could probably go on for hours. So thanks. That's the nature of talking about golf. You could go on for <laughs> quite a while. Yep. <laughs>hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Henry as I not only enjoyed getting the chance to speak with him, but I also learned a great deal in the process. Once again, if you would like to book online or in-person lessons with Henry, you can do so through the Skillist app by searching the name Henry Satina or through his website, henrysatinagolf.com. He also posts some great instructional content on Instagram under the same username. Huge thanks to Henry for taking the time to sit down with me and thank you very much for tuning in. I always appreciate it very much. If you'd like to reach me, you can always send me a message on any of the Scratch Golf Tips social media pages, or you can send an email to scratchgolftips at mail.com. Thanks again for tuning in. Play well and take care.